0: well we are, last week we started a new series called The Word and uh, man I'm excited about this, I so enjoy talking about these things. Um, we're going through the whole story of scripture and we're doing something in particular as we go through it and we're looking for how the whole Bible, this whole thing, is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And uh, sometimes it's a little hard to see that because it's an ancient book. We talked about this last week. Uh, But it really is all about Jesus. And so uh, in order to see that, we have to do a little bit of work together. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through the most essential parts of Scripture and and mine that out. But just as a quick recap, if you weren't here last week, I want to do a a quick recap for you so we're all on the same page. Uh, Week one, we talked about, it was just an introduction, but... We started with a little bit of a talk about what is the word, and we use that word, the word, to talk about a few different things. Is it the Bible? Is it Jesus? But just in a quick, as a quick recap, a quick summation, um, we talked about how the word is the truth, and it's a truth that is related and relational. So it's translated from the Greek word logos, and Greeks use that to mean the reason and meaning behind absolutely everything. And then the Apostle John, and when he was writing in the New Testament, one of the gospels, he did this very interesting thing and he took the word logos and he said it was a person. And when he was trying to sum up all that Jesus was and all that whirlwind tour that he had with him, he went, Oh yeah, you guys know the reason behind everything, the purpose behind everything. Yeah, that's a that's a person and his name's Jesus. And so to a Hebrew mind, this is a very interesting idea and one that is Normal to a Hebrew mind. A Hebrew mind is wanting to know the who behind creation. A Hebrew mind is wanting to, they're they're, they're acquainted with the idea that truth is relational and truth is a who question. What happens is that Greek minds, and and a Greek mind is sort of the foundation of secular society, a Greek mind has a different way of approaching truth. A Greek mind looks out at the world and aggregates truth, from like science or abstract things and they put it together themselves, inside themselves. And it has this almost self-centered way of approaching what the truth is. It's a set of facts maybe, it's a set of beliefs. And so we end up having this almost default disposition, many of us, of trying to find truth by collecting facts and information. Here's what the problem is, is that if we approach the Bible as a tool for adding a bunch of facts to our repertoire of facts in our quest for truth, it starts to become very, very frustrating. And what happens is we get a very twisted and incorrect version of the Bible when we try to make it meet truth in ways that aren't about relationship. Ways uh, truth in ways that aren't about revealing the personhood of who Jesus is in some very long, complicated story like your grandma's photo album. So, what we get when we approach it that way with our self-centered Greek minds is we get this one-quarter truth cartoon version of the gospel, and we drew that out last week. I'm going to walk through it super quick. Some of you are so tired of this. If you were at camp or you're at chapel, but you could probably come up here and do it along with me. But we're going to do it again. So, Quick recap. This up here, the little X, no, not true. This one. This one? Yes, this is true. But first, just, just for those who weren't here last week, very quick version of it. This is the cartoon, watered down, one quarter truth version of what people think the Bible story is actually trying to say. We've got Earth, then we've got me, and this is the course of our life, and at the end there's a Y. And you go to heaven or you go to hell based on how well you were able to live above the line or how well you were, or or, or you, don't, you go here if you were living below the line. And this is about doing good things. This is about doing bad things. Or living up here is also about like knowing a really specific set of truths and believing them in your heart and or agreeing that a bunch of facts about someone named Jesus, you agree with that. And then hopefully on the day that you die, you, you were in agreement with those facts or you were living well or living rightly and then you get to go to heaven. That's the plot of the movie All Dogs Go to Heaven. It's not the story the Bible is telling. So uh, that's not the one that, but, but I get how we get there, you know? But, but this is a self-centered way of viewing the story. That's actually not about you and you're not in the book. It's very applicable to you, but in a much more complicated way. Uh, or a much more profound way, I should say. Here, if Jesus was to draw the diagram, it would look something more like this. Jesus said that, you know, you've got earth, but then you've got heaven, and it's somehow uh, overlapping earth. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is already a more interesting story than the one we have up here, because apparently something about heaven is accessible now. That's great. I like that already. And, uh, It kind of begs the question, though, where is hell? And unfortunately, hell is very alive and well here in our world. And we are in charge of this world. And Jesus, God, is in charge of this world. Now, you might think it's good news to be in charge, right? It kind of is, a little bit. You get to create your own world. Nobody tells you what to do. Problem is, is that everybody's doing that. And everybody's creating their own little kingdoms. And sometimes they clash, and then we unleash hell on each other. So not only is the enemy in charge of, of this, we're kind of complicit in it. And we participate in unleashing hell on one another. So God kind of has, oh, I forgot to draw a very, very important arrow on this diagram. The big, all-important purple arrow. This kingdom is actually coming. And it's at hand now. And it's also on its way in. And it has something to do with who Jesus is. And at the end, they're going to overlap fully. And hell is on the outside as a monument to human choice because you don't have to participate in the purple arrow you can choose to not be part of this story but something has to be done about all the hell in the world and if you are i don't know at all tracking you're also really interested in the idea of like man i want hell gone don't you want the hell in this world gone nobody doesn't want everybody wants that here's the problem is in order to do that You've got to get rid, in order to get it out here, you and I are kind of included in this part. So, the big lean in moment, and the whole reason why we're going to try and go through this is because the super compelling story is how is God going to accomplish this without getting rid of you and me? In order to do that, and we kind of touched on this last week, the overlap has something to do with this kingdom of love that Jesus keeps talking about. And here's where it gets really easily misunderstood is that a kingdom of love is a kingdom of mercy only. We often, in our Western minds, we translate the word love into like forgiveness and mercy, which it totally is, but it's also fully just. Now, in order for for us to not be on the outside and be in here, God's gonna somehow have to be 100% merciful to each one of us, and 100% just for all the hell that we've unleashed on each other. And we've got a very, very interesting predicament about how a full love gospel is gonna win the day. Not, Not just a mercy gospel, not an it's all good guys kind of gospel, and not a gospel of, well, justice is paid by us all paying. It's somehow both. Super compelling story. So we get this really cool moment where, Today, we get to look at creation and decreation, unfortunately. And it's kind of a zoom in on this overlap. So let's zoom in on it. <laughs> Haha, I pre drew things. So we get to look at Adam and Eve today. You'll notice the purple lines and the green lines are very similar to our circles overlapping. And we've got this fun moment here called Eden, you also notice it in the graphic. Isn't it great? It all works together so perfectly. Um, uh, there, you, we get this zoom in on the overlap, okay? So what, it, this is our best window into what heaven and earth overlapping looks like is this place called the Garden of Eden. And then it's this mountaintop garden. You've got Adam and Eve, and you've got a couple trees in there. That really matter. <laughs> We're gonna get to that in a second. And this moment is really great, Unfortunately, it lasts for about two pages. But for those two pages, it's great. And it's great for two reasons, primarily. One is that humans are literally walking and talking with God personally. They're walking and talking with love, with the definition of love, named God. So like, that's sounds pretty secure. Not only is it very secure, it's, they're also very, very important. It not It's not just a place where they all just sit around and soak up love. It's It's also... They're, they have a role, and the, the term is, God says, go work and keep the land. Like, go have dominion over it. You're really important. Go do things. Go cultivate it. Go make something out of it. So it's a really secure place and a very significant place. Now, in order to stay in this moment, uh, they kind of only had one, one thing that they had to do. Remember how I said earlier that uh, purple, the purple place, God's in charge, of all the purple areas, God's the king of, of of heaven. He's he's in charge. That's what actually makes it so great. And so what they, what they, oh, the only part of, the only, I don't know, proviso on this super great, secure, and significant plan is they keep acknowledging him as the ruler and creator and author and sustainer of the world that he created. Not unreasonable. And we just, we're gonna use these words a lot over the next couple of weeks. But to stay here, they're gonna, all they have to do is, uh, Trust. Other words are have faith or fear God, or, but trust is the one we're gonna use. Seems simple, right? Seems simple. Now, here's, uh, here's what's really neat, is that God created us in his image, which I just think is so fascinating. You know how, um, you know, maybe you've noticed this when you've read the Bible, but most other small g gods, that get mentioned in the Bible, uh, often they're creating humans are creating images of them out of wood or bronze or gold or whatever. Note God very explicitly says, "Don't make an image of me." He never says, "Carve what I look like into the side of the thing I told you to make." He never says that. You know why? It's because actually, technically, you and I are the idols. Adels is a funny word because we, we think of it so negatively and we use it so negatively all the time. But technically, it's just a representation of God. That's the, all the word really means. And you and I are representing God here on earth. What an important job. That's, that's your role. And the way in which God wants to reveal himself to the world is people who fully trust him. And when you crank trusting God up to 11 out of 10, you get a representation of him in a beautiful way. He's like, oh, does the world wanna know who I am? Look at these people who know me. Remember the whole related truth idea? Deep Hebrew thoughts here, I know. But truth is related. And so God goes, "Here's here's the best way to manifest myself through people who love and trust me. Super neat. Jesus, of course, cranks this. But he actually had the same job description as you and I have, trust God fully. He just did it way better than you and I do. But he actually had the same job description, just trust. Uh, you can put this slide up. Here's a helpful little lens. As we look through um, the Old Testament, we're gonna have a bunch of different people up here over the next bunch of weeks. We're gonna look at Abraham, and Moses, and David. But uh, here's a helpful lens that you can, you can look at. Um, Old Testament character pattern. They give us a glimpse of Jesus when they trust fully. They give us a glimpse of like a perfect human, a perfect idol, a perfect representation of who God is. They give us a glimpse of Jesus. So that's real fun. That's how we're gonna kind of find him throughout, throughout scripture. Bad news though is that typically when they mistrust, they really highlight who we are and they give us great insights into the proclivities of our own sin nature. And so, unfortunately, page three is about how Adam and Eve are the first ones that give us a great, uh, unfortunate, view into what happens when we mistrust God. And we're going to just work through the text together today. And there is so much that, uh, as they decide to mistrust God, we can see ourselves so much in this. So let's work through it together. How do they mistrust so first of all, before we read Genesis 3, it's a tiny backstory, there's a tree in the garden. God says don't eat from it. And uh, maybe you've wondered why he put the tree there. Remember how the whole playing field is about love and relationship? Uh, he, has to give, he has to provide a way for us to be able to decide no thank you. Remember, we don't have to participate in the purple arrow. We don't have to participate in the kingdom. It's, it's love. Otherwise, it's coercion, and it's not love anymore, and we're doing something different. So we've got this tree that represents there's one thing you shouldn't do, and that's kind of the setup. And as long as they trust God and obey him, we're good. And then Genesis 3 happens. You can put that up, and we're gonna read through it and draw some conclusions together. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Okay, very, very clever beginning for the serpent. He says, did God really say? What is he doing? He's planting a seed of mistrust. It's a seed. It hasn't grown yet. No mistrust has actually happened yet. But the invitation is to mistrust. See how, see how obvious that is? Hey, did, did God really... It's the very, very beginning. Now, you might think that's just something that happened to Eve. Actually, I'm pretty sure that that's the beginning of every mistrust moment from you and I. As we go, did God really say? And uh, maybe you don't know this, but I always picture the, the devil on your shoulder, like in the cartoons. Again, we've got the cartoon version of Christianity. you got the devil on your shoulder and he's whispering in your ear to do bad things, right? You should do bad things because God doesn't like it when you do bad things. That's the cartoon version. Actually, what the enemy is probably whispering is a lot what the serpent says, and it's kind of more like, Is God really, is God really trustworthy though? Is he really? And he's placing a seed of doubt that we have a choice with. And then he doesn't have to tell us to sin. Sin just happens naturally after that. Because if we believe that lie and if we follow the mistrust to a conclusion, actually, we have a whole bunch of legitimate needs that we just now have to meet illegitimately that God was meant to to meet. And so sin takes care of itself if we start doubting God. And this is what we see happening in this story. So verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. For those of you who are familiar with Genesis two, you'll notice that there's an addition in what Eve says, she adds, and you must not touch it. That wasn't in the original instruction. This is interesting. So, scholars agree that Eve likely wasn't freestyling here in this moment. Rather, what probably happened is that Adam added it in his translation of it to her. Because in the narrative of the story, the command not to eat from the, that tree happens before Eve was created which is, I actually hadn't noticed that until very recently. You've got the instructions given to the man. Then you've got Eve created. And then Eve winds up knowing something about it, but she's added some rules. Or some rules were passed along to her. Now I know we're really digging deep into this, but I think Genesis 3 is probably one of the most like dissected chunks of scripture, probably, because there is, it just goes so deep. We're just skimming across the top here. But here's what's probably happening, is that, You've got Adam who's entrusted with these instructions and now he has a role to convey something about God's character and who God is through a rule. He's got to translate this to his wife. He's got to to explain something that he was given responsibility for. And what he does is he becomes an anxious leader and he focuses on the rule. And it sounds something like Okay, so God said that we can't eat from this tree. Actually, you know what? Actually, just don't even touch it. Don't even touch it. You know what? Don't even look at it. (laughs) Maybe you've parented this way in the past where you're just very concerned with the rule being followed. And so it gets more and more strict and it gets more and more rule-based. Here's what happens is when a leader leads anxiously, when someone who's entrusted with responsibility does it anxiously, the, the sh- there's a shift of weight of righteousness from right relationship to just right behavior. This is important to know because I, I'm like, I just want everything to be like clean and tidy and like what are the rules and what are the things that I have to do. And when we start leading that way and ministering that way and building the church that way, the weight starts to get put on right behaviors. Instead, there's actually something much deeper going on than making sure you don't touch this or don't touch that. It's like God's trying to explain his dominion and love and free choice, and there's so much more going on behind this rule. But somehow in the translation to Eve, we've got an erosion of what is really essential about this whole thing is that there's an erosion of a trust in the authority figure of God because a rule was focused on. So uh, I think parents do this all the time. You know, They give more rules when they get anxious. What happens is they end up teaching their children religion and then are surprised when rebellion comes in reaction because that's the natural equal and opposite reaction to religion. When the rules are only explained and the love behind it all isn't, rebellion is around the corner. It's just what happens. So what's, okay, why did I say all that? It's not just interesting dissection of text. The enemy, the next thing that he says, That this is all backdrop because he sees an opening that he takes. And it's important to know what he says next. We kind of have to know what's going on. The enemy sees an opening and he says, Okay, the woman seems to have been some, given some religious rule-based instruction here. There's a little bit of rule-keeping going on in there. And he sees that and he, and he capitalizes on it. And Watch what happens. Verse four, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, which is just a straight up lie. But in verse five, he says this, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For God knows, for God knows you know what the serpent is saying? God is withholding from you. And he's got some secret knowledge that he hasn't shared with you. And there is a reason to not trust in God's character. God knows that if you really knew what he knew, you'd see right through him. You see how he's attacking the character of God. And there's an opening given in just religion. Religion gives an opening for the enemy to go, yeah, but let's, let's, let's put God's character on trial here, though, really. What is he asking of you? And uh, the question that he's asking is like, you know, is God blessing you or is he oppressing you? And maybe you've thought this. You've thought, man, it's a lot of tr- this whole thing's about trust. Hey, wow, not a lot of explanations. That I've, less than I'd like. And God gets put on trial all the time in our hearts. And he just very unashamedly makes trust the whole metric and criteria. Super frustrating. I want more answers. But when we want more answers, we start going, yeah, did, is he, though, really? Maybe he's oppressing me. It's a very much an authority question. But people who know God personally, who, who, people who don't know God personally, are kind of the first to question his motives. And so you can already see this relational dynamic playing itself out. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So she sees with her own eyes. This is like, this language, okay, so uh, at the end of Judges, the very, very summative sentence of that terrible book where (laughs) Israel plunges into the depths of terribleness, at the end of Judges, it's all summarized with every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's how it's all summed up. Uh, men had uh, people had total control and they did whatever they wanted that's that's a description of hell <laughs> people got to do whatever they wanted that's a gripping and so you got this language about vision and she's looking for wisdom she's 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 looking for wisdom with her own eyes Now, of course, we know from Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or trusting the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But instead, the enemy's offering. It's like, no, 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 wisdom comes from you having your own eyes. And then in the next verse, uh, oh no, first, first we have to talk about Adam. At first pass, when you read Genesis 3 and you just read it really quickly, maybe for the first time, you think it's all Eve's fault. And then you really start dissecting it and you're like, whoa, Adam, you are, yeah, I think think this is mostly your fault. Because look what happens. Uh, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. He, he's right there. He's right there hearing all the lies, seemingly watching what would happen if Eve took a bite. Just standing back, watching what would happen, being like, oh, I wonder what happens if you... It's like a... I picture like... It's like a sending a monkey into space to see if it implodes. <laughs> And, no, it's, it's actually so degrading because he's been given instructions. He's been given, he's been given instructions that then he passed along in a very anxious way, apparently, and then stood back and sacrificed his bride for the sake of his own personal potential benefit. Now you start to see why it's the fall because in the future, we're gonna get a new Adam and the husband sacrifices himself for the bride, and in Eden you've got a husband sacrificing his wife for himself. And I mean, you can just see why God—it's just a, there's just a big face palm because it's a complete inversion of how it was all meant to be. So then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Um, the eyes of both of them are open. Kind of sounds like liberation in a way, doesn't it? It's like oh, they were liberated from their bondage or something. It has this liberation. A way of understanding this is they were just they they got to have their own eyes. They okay, they're all they're all yours now. Their your eyes are opened. You you are uncovered. You are. They're completely yours. You're totally in charge. And we have this. Oh, I should uh, The other page. You have the separation. And they drift apart. And you've got two kingdoms now. You've got one where God's in charge. And you've got one where humans are given their own eyes. Congratulations. They're all yours. Uh... My biblical theology professor said something very funny right here at this point in the story. And he's like, This is why you never talk about God without God. (laughs) Like in this story, they're just talking about God without God. And that's a bad habit to get into as Christians. So let's keep reading. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Notice he calls to the man, I would too, if he's the one that was given the original instructions. Where are you? Uh, So distance is the first thing that happens, of course, because we're talking about a relational gospel, and we talk in our church a lot about the fact that sin is whatever breaks relationship with God and others. And he asked the man, you know, where are you? As if God doesn't know where he is. Um, uh, This is what my professor was saying, which I really, really liked he said, where are you, is an opportunity for repentance in this moment. We can imagine what it's like if Adam actually crawled out of the bushes and owned it. We don't have that story. It's not what happened. We could, I don't know what would have happened. But the way that this is interpreted often is that where are you is like a, an opportunity for repentance and, 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 and being forthcoming. And uh, I find that the beginning of repentance for you and I, usually is God saying, where are you? Like, isn't that where the most, The best repentance happens for us when it does, is God's going. Hey, where, where, where are you? It's not, you know, it's not. Oh, you did the thing I asked you not to do. It's where are you? And I just think that's such a profound lead-in to a to a repentance moment. It's it's distance. It must be distance. It's distance from truth. It's distance from heaven. It's distance from eternity. And the question is, where did you go? And uh, unfortunately, Adam puts on a clinic for how not to repent in this moment. Do you want to know how not to repent? Here we go. He does two things. He hides and blames. He hides and blames. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman i you put here with me <laughs> so here's our hero the woman you put here with me she gave me some fruit from the tree and i ate it so he manages to blame god and his wife in one sentence which i find very impressive uh, so we do this there's a progression first we try hiding don't we when there's a moment and you're like, ooh, I feel a conviction, or I'm not sure about this, or I like, I just want to be in charge, actually. You know what? I just want to be in charge. And maybe it stops going well. The first thing we do is hide. And there's a lot of ways to do that, but, I mean, if we're, if we're putting on a clinic, Adam's putting on a clinic, so I guess I will too, I have some advice for you. You just need to make your world smaller and smaller if you want to hide. And for sure, cut people out of your life that are going like, to bring conviction with you. Cut people out of your life that, uh, that there's repercussions to your sin and your choices. And you can actually successfully hide for quite a while by making your life really, really small. And it's very, very sad when this succeeds. Because obviously, we have a really big baby in bathwater situation where your relationships get thrown out, which I think the enemy is just like stoked. That's the whole idea. So you just make your world really small and hiding. Uh, Usually we're unsuccessful, thank goodness, because that's a tough existence. But then we have then we have only one option left, and we are forced to blame. And Adam starts pointing places. And so here's what I think happens. Uh, What Adam's doing is he gets caught and he still mistrusts God, even after he's caught. So you're caught, you have an opportunity for repentance and he's still mistrusting and it looks like hiding and blaming. Hiding mistrusts God's mercy because if you get caught and you think that you're gonna get swatted and you're bracing for impact, you don't think God's merciful. You don't know him. You don't know what he's like. And because you don't know what he's like and you don't know that he's 100% mercy, the only option you have is to run. Run. Run and hide. Run for the hills. That's mistrust. You don't know him yet. You don't know who he is. You don't know the story. Or at least you don't believe it. So run. It's Adam's first option. Uh, Blaming, once he finds you, by God's grace, usually. um, Blaming is mistrusting that God's just. Because you can't fully own it you have to decrease your guilt and start going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, because you don't trust in God's full justice. It's incomprehensible to you. And God would have the same answer. He says, you, oh, you don't know me yet, do you? Oh, you don't know who I am. You don't know that I'm, my kingdom of love, and a little red heart in the middle, is both 100% merciful and 100% just. Oh, okay, you should just trust that and come along that journey with me. But we so often choose hiding and blaming. It's just pride. The anti-God state of mind, as C.S. Lewis would call it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she blames too. The man blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent. Then we get to the serpent. And then God does this really fun thing where he like detriangles the whole situation and he just keeps taking everybody's word for it. And he winds up at the end of the serpent. And then he has to work backwards dealing with each one of them. And uh, first he deals with the serpent. And he says this. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We're gonna talk more about this later, but this is our big clue. And it's probably the most skipped over and yet important verse in the whole Bible because it's very cryptic and has this imagery of us. It's hard, I get it. But what this is foreshadowing is a he who's going to both crush the head of the liar and how, okay, so how do you crush the head of a liar? You trust perfectly. That's how you crush the head of a liar. You trust, you you reject it entirely. You reject it and you defeat the lie by not believing it and not acting out on it at all. That's how you crush the head of the liar. Also super interesting, whoever this person is, whoever this he is, whoever this offspring of the woman is, is also going to get struck by it and be harmed by the mistrust of everybody else. And this altercation, they're actually going to kill each other in it. Which is, you know, alarm should be going off in your mind. So this new and better Adam is also going to be killed in the process. This is the... The immediate rescue plan. Man blames woman. Woman blames serpent. Instant rescue plan in motion once he gets to the bottom of it. It's like, oh, okay. So here's what I'm gonna have to do. This is what God's gonna have to do because curse is now involved and he goes to the woman and he says, okay, there's a plan. There's a plan and it has something to do with this he guy. Unfortunately, this curse you've brought on the whole situation, woman, your, mark's gonna be, your life's gonna be marked now by pain and oppression. Okay, man, there's a curse involved now. Can't do anything about that. We're gonna work on it. There's this heat coming, but unfortunately your life's gonna be marked by toil and death, and to the dust you shall return. Death is now unavoidable for you. We've got pain, we've got oppression, we've got toil, we've got death, but we also have a rescue plan at the same time. What is God saying? I know I'm summing up a lot right now, but what God is saying is there is a plan, and what I'm gonna have to do is I'm gonna have to overcome pain, and oppression, and toil, and death. I'm going to actually have to overcome the curse, and it's got something to do with this he. So, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Why is this important? Clothes, this is where we're getting close to the end here. Clothes is a sign of recommissioning. Clothes are what a person wears on the outside. It's like who they are. It's kind of how it's seen in scripture a lot is what somebody's wearing. is like, a, it's evidence of who they are. And so what God is saying here by clothing them is he's saying, I'm actually recommissioning you with the exact same job description to go work and keep like the plan already was. There's now a curse. There's now two kingdoms. You've really ruined stuff. We're gonna work on the plan. It's gonna take a while, but I'm going to recommission you and we're still gonna do this. We're still gonna do this. It's gonna cost me everything, but we're still gonna do this. And uh, there's no word that's misplaced in this whole chunk of scripture. And you notice that it says garments of skin. Why does that matter? In order to make leather, you've gotta kill an animal. And what this is foreshadowing is the fact that overcoming this curse and recommissioning you and I for our original calling and purpose, bloodshed is now required. Because not only is mercy required, Justice is also required. And so we have this immediate recommissioning where we're going, okay, now, it's, now justice needs to be paid because I'm a God of 100% mercy, which is why there's a plan at all, and I'm a God of 100% justice. And so we get this foreshadowing into the, the Israel sacrificial system and of course, Jesus in the future. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Verse 23. And the story begins with a rescue plan in motion that somehow has to overcome this curse. We wind up with something called exile, which is the result of mistrust. So that's a lot of teaching, I know. We're gonna end with one preachable point and then we'll be done. Uh, this is the question I've asked myself a lot and maybe you're asking this too. Why is the serpent allowed to speak in this story? You ever asked yourself that? Why is he allowed to speak? Even more interesting question, why is he still allowed to speak? Doesn't he speak to you every day? Doesn't he say, did God really say to you every day? He does to me. Did God really say you could have faith for that thing that you did God really say he was gonna build his church? Did God really say that you're fully loved? Did God really say that you're important? Did God really say that belonging to a, I don't know, just pick a thing that you know matters some deep place in your heart and then the enemy is still talking. He still won't shut up about this. Why? Humans uh, were supposed to bear witness to God's character. That's what this story's about. It's an opportunity for the people he made that that were supposed to know him and love him. It was an opportunity for them to bear witness about the God that they knew, and they didn't. They weren't witnesses. Humans are created to be the witnesses of the truth of who God is. And truth, as we know from the judicial system, comes from non-coerced testimony. It's actually still the most powerful thing we have in our justice system is a testimony from a person who knows another person and says something in a non-coerced way. It's still the most powerful, justice-inducing thing we have. Non-coerced testimony. And so, you might be wondering, why is the enemy allowed to speak then? Why is the enemy allowed to speak now? Well, you can't kill the liar until you kill the lie. If Jesus, or if God... Comes around and just keeps shutting up the liar in this story and in your story. If he keeps going like, Ship, just don't, don't tempt them with the stuff because they won't. Like, imagine if he was doing that. Like the enemies, the serpent starts speaking and he just shuts them up. It shoots the whole thing in the foot, and you and I are actually are super unimportant now because we have no job, we have no ability to witness to who he is and God's just an insecure God making sure nobody lies to us, lies to us. And so instead, God says, here's the plan. Uh, you get to be a witness and, and give testimony to my goodness and Jesus does it first and then we follow suit in his example and the lie is killed. And then once the lie is killed, then we can kill the liar. But before that, God's just being insecure and he's not. And he says, God says, my story and what I've accomplished through the cross, and we're going to get there in a few weeks, what I've accomplished in this rescue plan that I executed perfectly throughout the Old Testament, what it led towards ultimate redemption for humanity, it works. It works and it's accessible and it's Perfect. I don't have to shut the liar up. I don't have to. We can let him talk all day. We can let him talk all day. He can say anything he wants. His lies mean nothing, and I've proved it. And I've proved it with my love for my people. Now, watch them. He, he, I feel like he'd say to the enemy watch them prove you wrong. Watch them prove you wrong with their lives. Watch them prove you wrong with the way they trust me, even though you're barking at them and the world that's expiring seems oh so attractive. No, 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 they know me, they know me. Oh, we're important. Oh, we're so important. You and I are, Jesus is on trial in front of the whole world. He's on trial and he's saying, yeah, I actually, I actually do want people to live by faith, yeah kind of unapologetically. And yeah, I did say I was in charge because it was best guilty. And then the world goes, did you hear what he just said? Did you hear that? He said you have to live by faith and not with elements of this way. He said that he's in charge. What say you? What say you on the witness stand? And we say, yeah, it's good news. It's good news that he is. Man, you're important. And man, our trivial decisions to let the lie be squashed in our lives and to trust him and to know his word is of infinite importance and an overwhelming sense of responsibility that's beautiful too. Like the vulnerability of God punches you in the face when you start getting into this Word, And that's what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through all these different stories. Adam and Eve are the first one. We're gonna go through a few more and we're gonna see how God keeps doing this and he keeps being vulnerable and he keeps wanting to use you and he keeps doing things that necessitate his own bloodshed for it to work because he wants you to know him and he wants you to know his character. I wanna pray for us. Uh, and uh, yeah, Lord, we, uh, Lord, we we accept the beauty of this mantle you've put on us, that we would get to defend you, that we would get to say yes, you are good, you are good, uh, only you are good, only you are trustworthy. Lord, I pray that we would give you dominion over our eyes again, that we would give you dominion over our hearts again. And Father, I pray that you would give us courage to live out your truth, to live out in a way, that's, that, in a way that trusts you. Lord, I pray that our our lives would only be able to be explained by faith in you. And Lord, your word says that that. Those who hope in you will not be put to shame. Those who hope in you will not be led astray. And so, Father, we firmly anchor ourselves in you and we say, we are your children and we're doing what you say because we know that that does not return void. And it's the most logical thing we could do. It's the most foolproof thing we can do, even though the world will say that we're foolish. It's the most foolproof thing that we can do. And so, Father, we say we're fools for you. If we look foolish, so be it. Lord, your word is true and it's timeless and it's applicable and it matters. And so we anchor ourselves in it again again. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing it to us.